open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Job and put a finger in chapter 32, would you? Just go to Psalms and turn left. You'll find Job and locate chapter 32. While you're doing that, uh, a four-second summary of chapters 1 through 31. You ready? With friends like that, who needs enemies? If you're curious what that means or perhaps why the chuckles, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's message. Read Job 1 through um, 31, and you'll probably say the same thing to yourself. Well, his friends have just finished lecturing him. Three rounds of three speeches each. Job responds as well, so a pretty lengthy time of conversation. They're done, and a new young theologian steps up to the mic. It's now just a single speaker. His name is Elihu. You may choose to say Elihu. I'll say Elihu. Either one works. And Elihu is the youngest of the entire group. He appears to be the most frustrated one as well. In, in fact, in Job 32, within the first few verses, the word angry is used four times. So he's exasperated. He's more than likely exasperated, angry, frustrated with their answers, perhaps Job's unwillingness to listen. A number of things could be in play here, but he takes the stage and he's going to now begin his answer to the questions that Job asked in chapter 3. I want to remind you, this is the structure of the book, and we're preaching in such a way as to make sure that the structure of this poetic book is maximized. I'd remind you of this structure through our graphic that we're showing you pretty much each week, that Job does begin with three chapters of, of anguish, and then it begins to climb, it escalates, it crescendos in a pyramid-like fashion to the Lord answering Job. In between, of course, Job and God are these three to four friends who give their answers. And we're seeing how they're falling short. In fact, we're going to see today in Job 32 through 37 that what Elihu does is give more of a cranial approach to Job's questions. He has kind of a neck up perspective. In fact, let me just tell you what I think about his Oh, three or four rounds of counsel. Here's our take-home truth up front. Jot this down in your journal, put it in your Bible. I think you'll see this truth bubble up and surface in these chapters as we kind of jump peak to peak through his uh, speeches. But we're going to see that Elihu, he holds a mentally theological view or approach or perspective, and it is incomplete in answering why, because it emphasizes a factual, not relational picture of God. You see, to Elihu, God was only a distant deity. And so Elihu's theology is not distorted, but it does appear to be detached. 
It appears to be non-tangible, untouchable. It's like a class without a lab. So let's briskly walk through these chapters, can we? Like I said, we're going to kind of jump peak to peak. We'll highlight his counsel. There are three uh, thrusts in his counsel. And we'll just show you some verses in each thrust that will kind of show you, oh, this is kind of what he's aiming at. And you may notice that his speech begins in 32, but the three thrusts aren't found till chapter 33. Why is that? Because this young um, theologian spends the first chapter introducing himself. It takes a while. He's got a pretty long resume. You could just say he's kind of a know-it-all. He's kind of proud. And so that helps us with some insight into perhaps why his answer does seem to be a little neck up-ish, head only-ish. He has an overestimation of himself. Perhaps he's that young seminary grad who's got his first church. I don't know, right? But he does begin to speak in chapter 33. And his first thrust is this, that God is supremely gracious. Again, he's giving us a theological perspective or answer to Job's questions. So we're not surprised to see it center on God. And he's stating in this first chapter, verses 8 through 33 of chapter 33, that God is supremely gracious. Notice a couple of themes in this first thrust. In fact, you'll find that each thrust has a couple of themes as well. Here he says that God is gracious to speak Look at verses 12 to 17 of chapter 33, would you? He's convinced Job is wrong, which he says in verse 12. And he's convinced that Job is wrong because God is greater than man. And so he questions Job. Why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? In other words, Job, why do you appear to be um, questioning God for not answering you? He says in verse 14, God speaks time and again. A person may not notice it in a dream, a vision in the night when deep sleep comes over people. As they slumber on their beds, he uncovers their ears and terrifies them with warnings in order to turn a person from his actions and suppress the pride of a person. So do you see the sense of this first uh, thrust that God has spoken to you? He has spoken several times. I think he's saying this to Job initially because I think he thinks Job has a pride problem. Now, let me just give you a little preview about next week and the week following. I do personally believe the reason Job does not respond to Elihu after 37 and God speaks immediately is because I think Job begins to wonder, maybe I have been haughty. Maybe I have been proud. Maybe I am proud. And so he's quieter on the heels of this incomplete answer. That's just my opinion. I can't prove it. But I do find it interesting that Elihu seems to be putting his finger on something, though it's a mental cranial way, and maybe it kind of touched a nerve with Job. And so it quietens, quietens him, quiets him at the end. Notice how he says, God is not only gracious to speak, notice the second theme in this first thrust, that he is also gracious to save. Look over at 29 and 30 of this same chapter. 
He says God certainly does all these things two or three times to a person in order to turn him back from the pit so he may shine with the light of life. So in both of these sections about God speaking and about God saving, Elihu makes the point to say God is doing these things because he's gracious and he wants to turn someone around. And you may read this and think yourself, Todd, that's interesting that you think Elihu is cranial and mentally theologically approaching this, but this sounds pretty personal. Like God speaks, God saves. I'm not sure I'm tracking with you, Todd. You want a, a little more, uh, you want to bring some more proof here? Glad to. Do you find it intriguing that the entire first answer is all in third person? I do. And I'll grant you that there are some aspects in which we see God's graciousness to speak and to save, which is encouraging. But I have questioned why does Elihu not even ever use first person for his own testimony? He doesn't even use second person to say, Job, this is what God has done for you. It's always like somebody out there this happens to. It's kind of like in the church, like who's going to do that? Oh, somebody will. It's this third person that no one's ever met, right? I kind of get that sense from Elihu's first uh, aspect of his speech that it's technically true, but it's way out there. So I personally don't think Elihu has a sufficiently personal understanding of God to use first person. I think he's finding in himself a distance. And so he then portrays God as distant. Maybe he thinks that if he uses first person or even second person, he'll be too light or irreverent. I think we do have a little more insight in chapter 34, verse 19. It's the second thrust. We'll get there in a moment. But he talks about God as this impartial administrator. So what Elihu seems to do is lump everyone in this big category and say, God will take care of it. And so he seems to lack the ability to kind of make God um, seem touched by specific personal conditions. So I would say to you, yes, this could have the appearance that it's personal as it speaks of God's graciousness to speak and to save. But I would contend with you that a deeper dive would show us that he's still probably pointing to what happens out there by a God who's far away to somebody we'll never know. It's true. It just lacks like a tangibility, you know. Let's look at the second thrust, can we? The second thrust of this one speech begins in chapter 34, goes through 35. Here, Elihu just makes the case that God is supremely just. Notice verses 10 to 12 of chapter 34. Here he says that injustice is impossible for God. He says in verse 10, listen to me, know this, it's impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly. For he repays a person according to his deeds. He gives him what his conduct deserves. Indeed, it is true that God does not act wickedly and the Almighty does not pervert justice. Amen. You would not disagree with that. But his logical result is very in intriguing because he says since injustice is impossible for God, then conversation with God is unnecessary. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 23 of this same chapter. 
verse chapter 34. He says, God does not need to examine a person further that one should approach him in court. In other words, Job, why would God want to talk to you? He can't do anything wrong. Look at verse 29. But when God is silent, who can declare him guilty? When he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he does watch over both individuals and nations so that godless men should not rule. The, the sense is this, Job, God can't do wrong. So why would he discuss this with you? Just take the medicine, Job, swallow the pill. Quit debating the matter. But here's the point that, that I think I would make to Elihu. If there's no conversation, there's no relationship. It's a theology, again, that isn't very touchable or tangible. Is this theology just? Yes. But is it close and personal? No. So God is supremely gracious. God is supremely just. Notice his third thrust. It begins... In chapter 36, it's this, that God is supremely mighty. This runs through chapter 37. Just a word about these two chapters in which we see his third thrust. Many think that he is describing an actual storm that's on the way. You'll see this in, I think it's verse 33 of chapter 36. You see where it says there is a storm approaching. Also in Chapter 38, it begins by saying that God is speaking through this storm. So whether it's symbolic or real, whether it's literal or metaphorical, I don't know. You can decide for yourself. But a storm is used as one of the ways to show that God is very mighty. He's supremely mighty. He says two things about God's might. He says, first of all, God's might is unstoppable. Look at 36, 19. Excuse me, not 36, 19, um, 37, 13. He says he causes this to happen for punishment for his land or for his faithful love. Do you see that? God's causing things to happen. There may be a variety of reasons, but God is causing this to happen. Again, yeah, maybe I was right about that. Excuse me, 36, 19. Look what he says here. Can your wealth or all your physical exertion keep you from distress? Job, all you've had, all you've earned, all you've done, they can't stop the storm that's on the way. You can't prevent God's hand. So he says that God's might is unstoppable. But then he says this, that God's might is unknowable and unapproachable. Verse 22 of chapter 36, look how he talks about this. He says, look, God shows himself exalted by his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed his way for him? Who has declared you've done wrong? Remember, Job, that you should praise his work, which people have sung about. All mankind has seen it. People have looked at it from a distance. Look at the next verse. Yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted. So yes, you're going you're gonna to agree this is true, but it does seem a little one-sided only. Like God's just out there. No need to talk to him. He doesn't need your opinion. He's going to do the right thing every time. And it's powerful. You can't stop it anyway. And so he says that God is unstoppable, but he's also unknowable, unapproachable. He's out there at a distance. Look at verses 5 and 23 of chapter 37. When God thunders wondrously with his voice, he does great things that we cannot comprehend. 
that is true, and yet there is a sense in which we can see God's handiwork and what he's doing. Look at verse 13. Excuse me, verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot reach him. He is exalted in power. He'll not violate justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. Again, true statements. But he leaves it only in a distant type of um, uh, wrapping. Job, this is just the way it is. This is God. Whatever's happening is not wrong. He can't do wrong, but he shouldn't talk to you about it. He doesn't need you to advise him or question him or ask him, and you can't stop it anyway, so what's the use? So Elihu clearly in this speech and these three thrusts, each with two themes, Elihu sees God as very powerful, but not very personal. His might his graciousness, his justice is from a distance. It's like watching a storm taking shape and the storm's going to do whatever it wants. Just endure it. Now, let me be very vulnerable with you as a pastor and as a teacher. Some of you are thinking right now probably that I'm disagreeing with Elihu. And I'm saying God isn't powerful or that he isn't mighty or that he's not um, unapproachable. I'm actually not disagreeing with Elihu. In fact, I'll say to you and admit to you, in both the Old and New Testaments, these very statements are made. We're told that uh, God is high and lifted up. We're told that he dwells in unapproachable lights. I, I don't ever want to disagree with the Bible. What I'm saying to you is I think that Elihu is simply incomplete. He's giving an explanation to one who is suffering that's distant and far away. It's not untrue, but it is very detached. And I'm convinced the reason this answer is incomplete is because especially to those who are suffering, what they need is tangible theology. They need the kind of doctrine you feel deep down. So don't mishear me just know i am kind of analyzing these chapters bring them to you and i'm contending that it is incomplete in his response to job's why questions see what job actually needed was not just the factual aspect of god which is his power what job needed was the actual presence of god like the personal side. And Elihu was only communicating one aspect, the factual. Elihu should have also communicated the actual presence of God in the middle of Job's suffering. He is both powerful and personal. And this is why I maintain that his answer is incomplete. So let's review for a minute. Kim, let's summarize some few things. A lot of peaks we've jumped through, lots of verses, a number of chapters. In fact, in two weeks, we've covered what, 37 chapters? So a record-setting pace for First Assembly Church, no doubt. So can we just do some summary here? First of all, Job's first three friends dealt with his actions. Elihu seems to deal with his attitude. Job's, that is. The first three friends thought he acted wrongly towards God. Elihu seems to think Job is thinking wrongly about God. 
Job's first three friends, they were sure he was under condemnation. Their words are summarized by this. Job, this is God punishing your sin. I think Elihu thinks Job needs an explanation. You can summarize his words with this. This is God proving he is supreme. So after hearing all of that and these chapters in this summary, can we just once again review and just let it cement in our hearts kind of the thrusts, the main aim of Elihu's speech and why we think it's incomplete. Here's our take-home truth. You saw it earlier. Let's just review it briefly to make sure we understand what we think he's saying and why it's incomplete. It's because it's a mentally theological view. Say those words with me. Mentally theological view. Remember last week, his first three friends gave him a humanly judicial view. And it fell short because of its timing. It was short-sighted. Now, Elihu comes with a mentally theological view. It's incomplete. It's detached because it emphasizes a factual, not a relational picture of God. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, Todd, what's missing? Perhaps you're like, I agree with you. It does seem somewhat distant out there, true, but not real tangible, like real cranial, neck uppish. You're right. I, I get that. I see it. But what's missing then from his speech, from his answer, from his counsel? In a word, eminence. Say it with me. Eminence. Now, there's a reason I want to teach you that word. Make sure you understand what it means. Because it is the opposite of really what Elihu was trying to say. I think Elihu did a great job describing the transcendence of God. Say that word, transcendence. These are both doctrinal $10 words. Elihu was all about God's transcendence, which is true. He did not relay, communicate what's also true, and that is the eminence of God, his nearness, his closeness, his tactile-ishness, can we call it that? That he's right here with us. Let's talk for a minute about these two big words, can we? I think they'll help us give some handles for Elihu's answer. First of all, transcendence and eminence are connected Christian doctrines. Transcendence speaks about God and his exalted and royal dignity and how he exercises both control and authority over all of his creation. He has the right to and he does that. He's transcendent, far and above principality and power. But God is also imminent, which is saying that because of his position and power, because of his transcendence, that he has created all things, he then operates and relates to them in a very personal way, especially his people. He's intimate with them. He knows them. And he does this because he has made them. So they're connected, but they're different. Transcendence and eminence. Now, we need both of these. These are both true. And they it, it, both are needed to give us a full picture of God. Okay? We don't want to miss either one of these. 
This is why I think Elihu's answer is incomplete. It seems to focus only on the transcendence of God. And so the, the, the result is we're left with something that's far away, untouchable, non-tangible, distant. When God is actually high and lifted up, but he's also close and near and personal. So now that we know what's missing, let's ask this question. Why did Elihu commit this error in his counsel? That's a really intriguing question. And I, I think before we answer it, let's admit this. We've all done this. I've done this. There's other pastors in our church. Uh, some retired. Some are pastoring with us now. But I think every pastor would say they've preached at times doctrine that really seemed distant. They've given truth that didn't have any kind of tactile element. We've talked in ways that was like neck up. It was all about the cranium and it never made the 18 inch journey to the heart. <laughs> every pastor, every preacher, every small group leader, probably all of us as parents have had moments where we just simply thought we knew something in this area of our body but we didn't really know it in this area of our body. Are you with me? So, so why did he commit this error that we've all done at times? I think one of the most intriguing portions of this section is the fact that the text gives us a little wink and a nod as to why Elihu did this. It's found in verse 4 of chapter 32, and it tells us that he was young. In fact, it says he was the youngest there's no reason to include that necessarily except to give us a clue as to why his answers seem so lofty. Why he centers on explanation only. Why he was so frustrated and exasperated at the beginning. So let's just be frank here for a few moments and admit that when we're young, we tend to do this more. Why? Because we simply don't have the necessary time under our belt to see how truth becomes tangible. Often that occurs in the crucible of experiences and time. When we're young, we haven't always seen how the abstract concept becomes concretely and sometimes painfully practical. Now, this is unintentional and it's unavoidable, but it is real. If his first three friends had a lack of shared suffering, and so consequently they resorted to the simplest solution, remember that from last week? I think what's happening here with Elihu is this. He had a lack of shared time, and so he resorted to the loftiest explanation. You see, we do this when we're young. Our minds think when we see something, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we're actually right about that. And so we spout the perfect explanation, usually at the wrong time. We provide the ethereal in the realm of the practical. We give the ideal right in the middle of an ordeal. I mean, when you're young, let's be frank, utopia is clearly in charge. I don't think that's a sin. I think it's natural. Someone asked me after first service, what's in charge when you're old? And I said to them, probably cynicism. When you're young, you're like, hey, we can do better than this. 
This is not the way it's supposed to be. When you're older, you're like, ah, it'll work out. Don't worry about it. And if it doesn't, you get anything about it. So I'm not saying that either of these are, are sin. I'm saying something about aging and time and experience does something to us. And when we don't have much of it, we tend to go to the loftiest explanation. In fact, Elihu reminds me of an engaged couple, not a married one. You've talked to those folks, right? You've talked to the single guy who's given his newlywed friend advice. Like, bad timing, buddy, right? People have asked me at times, like, why, Todd, did you move to uh, post-marital mentoring? I thought you were all about premarital counseling. And here's why I moved. And some of you in this room, I've done your ceremonies, we've met. You were in the previous category of premarital counseling. Not that that's bad. It's just not as effective as post-marital mentoring. Here's why. Before uh, a couple is married, it's all green lights. You can give them inventories. You can share with them that there's probably three or four real hurdles you're going to experience. And most all your issues will come from these three or four, like finances, uh, your background, intimacy, in-laws. And all of this will be seen in your communication. Communication will be the overarching issue. And it will have different tentacles. But just know that's kind of how it goes. Oh, yeah, we've talked about that, Todd. We got it. Like, man, we're aware of that. We, we Man, we have dug deep into that. You know it. Like, we're down with you, Todd, for sure. We're ready. Let's get married. You can talk four, five, six sessions. They've nailed it. But what I found is that in Q1, after their marriage, they'll come in. And their jaws are dropping. I've had couples say this to me. How did you know? I'm like, well, exceptions, that's a terrible strategy. And there are none. Like, marriage is hard. And the first year is usually difficult. And it, we found that statistically and informally, these three or four things are always, like, in the mix. Like, man, we, we just had no idea. I'm like, well, you had a lot of ideas, like, six months ago, you know? It's a, and so I've just moved to where now I have a, maybe a couple of sessions with couples to talk about their ceremony, maybe a few highlights. But I say, I'll perform your wedding if you meet with me once a quarter for a year after you're married. And man, I'll be honest with you, it's uh, not only more humorous, it's more effective, okay? That's what I'm talking about here. It's, it's like there's something about going through something that helps you realize this is not just way out there. This is really right here. And when we're young, we tend to only see what's way out there. We have a lack of shared time to see that it's okay to have a lofty expectation. I think it's actually good to spout the ideal. Timing may be an issue, but we shouldn't lose sight of that. But sometimes the journey there is not as easy or quick as perhaps you think when you're young. I remember as a college kid, I, I think this is probably the dumbest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I still apologize to my parents for it. I just re I actually regret this. When I was a college student, I gave my parents for Christmas a book on marriage. Like, like who does that if they're not like an idiot, right? There's only one word for that. It's called stupid. But I had some thought in my head that they needed it or, or it would be a good idea. It was, it was insanely dumb. I mean, 
I probably should call him today and apologize again, right? <laughs> but that's what we do when we're young. We have this idealistic, mentally, almost perfectionist idea of how it ought to be and work. And it's not technically wrong. It's just a little detached from the crucible of real life experiences. This is not to say that older people don't also commit this sometimes. I was talking with a number of folks earlier who asked, like, how do we avoid this? And I think one of the things that our young folks can learn from those who are older is that probably the person who's able to still maintain an idealistic perspective and yet not become an ally who is timing and choice of words. Like just how you say something makes a big difference. And I've noticed that if you can say something like that, I've noticed that when you're 60, you do say something differently than when you're 30. If you've raised kids, you've seen them grow up, you just have some different perspectives. You have a little more patience. Uh, and so you do voice the same idea, but perhaps the journey there just has a few more curves and bends to allow for the fact that we're all really human. Are you with me? So I just want to encourage our older people, don't give up on the ideal. Let's love the fact that our younger people are aiming for that. And this is why I love multi-generational small groups, multi-generational churches, us all being together in one family. Let's not give up on that, but let's help them learn how to voice things in a way that allows for some of the ordeals in life, even as we're still pursuing the ideal in life. So how can we avoid this regardless of our age? Let me give you a take-home application as we wrap this up that I think will help us not be neck-uppish people, not be cranial only or just mentally, theologically factual, but also relational and personal in how we communicate about God to those who are suffering. Here's what I highly suggest we pursue, that we live in the ground level reality, shoe leather reality, that God is a relational being who desires to be close to his people. I would remind you, Yes, God is spirit, but God is not mythological. God is an actual spirit being who relates. The first and most definitive proof is that he has related for all eternity to himself in a Trinitarian fashion. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Godhead, the three in one, have related perfectly in harmony for eternity. So God is a relational being. Yes, he's high and lifted up, exalted. He's above all principality and power for sure, but he's also a relational, near, imminent being. And so we need both of these in our theology. If we just have one, then we're, we're what I would call a, a thinly sliced and I don't want you to live with a thinly sliced theology. I want you to have a full-orbed theology, a fully illuminated understanding about God so that you live with a robust biblical theology, not a 
a slender factual one or on the other side, a slender relational one. We want you to grasp a theology that communicates both the transcendence and eminence of God. Now, to show you that this is what we should do and what we want to communicate, I want to say this to you. This is what the Bible communicates from cover to cover. One of the Bible's major storylines is that God is a relational being who desires relationship, intimacy, closeness, that he is near and that he has taken the initiative to be near us. So can we just for a moment, and I think this will really raise the uh, energies in our heart. Can we just take a real quick walk through, through this storyline of the Bible to show that the high and lifted up one who is far above principality and power and deserves dominion, authority, and majesty, all of that is true, is also the one who has initiated and pursued relationship with his creation. Can you walk with me for a minute and get your hiking boots on? This will stir your soul. In Genesis, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. And the Bible says that he walked with them in Eden in the cool of the day. All of that poetic language is designed to show us a relationship that's close. In fact, in those days, it was perfect. God in communion and fellowship with his creation. Adam and Eve sinned, however, and who was it that came looking for Adam and Eve? It was God. They were hiding, but God came looking. He calls Adam by name. And to cover for their sin, he is the one who takes the animal and atones for their sin with the shedding of blood and uses the skins to cover their nakedness. This was God's pursuit. We get to Exodus. We see God sovereignly appearing to Moses in the burning bush. Moses is a fugitive. He's running from the powerful army and the captains and the leaders of Egypt. And God appears to him sovereignly and says, I want you to go back to Egypt and deliver my people. Moses does. God shows up in a very powerful and personal way, delivers the people, parts the water, and puts them just a short distance from the land that he had promised Abraham. He's ready to give it to them, but then they fall back into unbelief, rebellion. And so for 40 years, they wander the wilderness in this long loop. And what does God do in the 40 years of their punishment? He says to Moses, Moses, construct a tabernacle. Call it a tent of meeting. I will dwell in that tabernacle right in the middle of my people. Catch this, church. And what was their punishment? God chose to be with them right in the middle of it. In fact, if you were to analyze the encampment of all of Israel's tribes in the wilderness, they were to each pitch their tent towards the tabernacle to see that God was with them. When they would move, he would lead them by a cloud in the day. He would lead them by a fire at night. He was in their midst. As the Old Testament unfolds, we find that God ordained it for, for Solomon to build him a house, a permanent structure. And so, man, was it ever a house? The tabernacle then was the temple in Jerusalem. Beautiful. 
And, and it was designed, the Holy of Holies, to accentuate all the transcendency of God in a way that was accessible to. There were ways to enter. There was processional. There was protocol. But God was among us, dwelling here with us. They continued to sin even after that. Hundreds of years of violating the Sabbath and idolatry. And so God delivered them into the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians at different times for punishment. After 70 years, God brought them back to their land. And Ezra and Nehemiah talk about how they rebuilt the temple and how they rebuilt the city. And God was once again dwelling with and among his people. He was the one who ordained not only the captivity, but also the release through foreign kings and leaders. God was wanting and desiring relationship. This, of course, all culminated in Christ's coming. What we know as the incarnation. The word being made flesh. And all of God's metaphors and symbols and pictures of the Old Testament are completely totally fulfilled when Jesus came in his first coming. He inaugurated the kingdom. In fact, his best name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And all those former things are shadows because Christ came. He was in the middle of us. John says in chapter one, he pitched his tent right among us. You can't ask for better language about a God who is imminent and near and close. First John says that, uh, that you touched and felt and observed and heard and watched him. Those are words that are all about the senses. And who did they watch? They watched God among us. Christ incarnated Jesus, the Lord. When Jesus was ministering, he would say this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. How was the kingdom of God near them and at hand? Because Christ was here. So do you see all of the with us of God and God the Son? And Christ would minister and serve. He would die. He'd be buried. God would raise him. He would ascend. Before he ascended, he told his disciples, I've got really good news for you that me going away is really an advantage for you. Like this is probably the most stunning, staggering verse in the New Testament that Jesus said to his disciples, I've got great news. It's better if I go away because I'll not just be near you when I send the Holy Spirit. I will actually be in you. Are you catching? Are you sensing how committed God is to a relationship and to pursuing and initiating? He now has sent us the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers every single believer. That is an advantage over Christ being even next to you in one place in bodily form. That's an advantage. God loves us so much, doesn't he? He cares for us. He longs to be with us and relate to us. He is imminent, close, and personal. And so now as we pilgrim our way through this journey, we have the Holy Spirit who is always with us, in us, empowering us, this will be the case until the day that Jesus Christ returns at his second coming to consummate what he inaugurated when he came the first time. He said the kingdom of God is here. It's near. It's at hand. 
when he comes again, he will consummate it, deliver the new heavens and the new earth, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And watch this. Revelation 21 says this phrase two or three times. God will be among his people. The dwelling place of God will be with men. It'll be Eden 2.0, but even better. Now watch this. In Revelation 21, these are the exact words that when John saw the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, when he was this, he had this vision, he says, there was no temple because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb were the temple. You know what the temple was, right? It was the actual presence of God among his people. And John is saying, when Christ returns and we're in the new heavens and new earth with him, he will be right in the middle of us. This is how committed God is to a relationship. And often we think of the gospel technically as that weekend he was crucified and he arose. And that's technically true. But the gospel story from cover to cover is that God has always initiated and pursued relationship with his people. And I long and can't wait for the day when Jesus comes again. And he is right in the middle of us, visibly reigning as the king he already is. You see, church, this is our God, both transcendent, powerful enough to do every bit of that, and also imminent, close enough to, to do all of that with you. This is our God, the three-in-one Trinitarian God. Yes, God the Father who planned, predestined, elected, appointed, and ordained that he would send his son to be the savior of the world, who before eternity passed, orchestrated this beautiful plan of redemption and God would call to himself people from every corner of the world to be in his family. He would do that through the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Yes, this is our God who incarnated and lived among us, the eternal Christ, then Jesus, he was fully man. He knew all of your suffering. He's been tempted in every way like you, the Bible says. He wore your flesh and your bones and your skin and he had your emotions. He was known as a man of sorrows. Yes, Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He was fully human yet fully divine. This is our God, close, near, touchable. This is our God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who now lives and then dwells and gives spiritual gifts to every single one of God's children, who empowers them to wait for the redemption of their bodies, who groans with words you can't even utter before the Father. This is God, the Holy Spirit. This is our Trinitarian God, church, who is no doubt highly exalted and transcendent, but unquestionably close, personal, and intimate. Amen. Can we praise the Lord this morning and thank him for his transcendence and his eminence? And this is the God to whom you and I should respond. You cannot turn a deaf ear to this God. You should not turn away and reject him. This is a God who is powerful and personal. And this morning, in this very room, God is close and near, and he's asking you to respond 
to him. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. So church, would you respond to this transcendent, imminent God? Would you pray to him this morning? Would you trust him? Would you in faith follow him? Would you believe him? It could be a variety of responses, but do not turn away from a God this powerful and a God this personal. Respond to God today.